Welcome to episode 24 of Flying Podcast. Today I'm talking to Ted Moore of European Balloons. Ted runs European Balloons from his base in Great Missenden, which is in the Chilterns in the home counties. Uh, I've had many emails asking me to do a podcast on ballooning, so here it is. Let's have a listen to what Ted has to say about hot air ballooning. Good morning, Ted. Good morning. Um, why should somebody learn to fly a hot air balloon? Well, in my opinion, it's probably the best form of flying that you can get. It's yep. because it's uh, entirely dependent on the weather and the wind, and so therefore it's it's just you and nature. It's like um, sort of like open top sports car of the sky, isn't it? Exactly. You yeah. can smell things when you're up there. Yeah, you okay. can see the birds. See the, the red kites flying underneath you. Yeah, brilliant. Uh, now I have a, a PPLA for a fixed wing. What do you need for a, a hot air balloon? Uh, a PPL, similar to the fixed wing. Yep. The disciplines are slightly different, but the examinations are close to it. Um, the hours you need just a little less, 16 hours, um, within a two-year period. And then you just need to do four instructor flights during that time. And then a, a solo and, a, and an exam, plus the written papers. Okay, and the, the exams, that's uh, aviation law, NAV? Meteorology, balloon systems, and human, human performance. performance. That's right. Okay. Uh, there's no radio systems there. Is Not there? required for a PPL. Right. It's a requirement for a CPL. Okay. Uh, medical. Medical is just a, a DVLA, effectively, for a PPL. Uh, again, for a CPL, you need a class two medical. Okay. So for the PPL, it's similar to the NPPL. Exactly. So it's yeah. just get signed off by your EGP yeah. basically. There are changes afoot of course with the AASA rules coming in. Are they? Um, the CPL license will disappear and we're going to have, we're going back 20 years to a, a PPL with a commercial exemption to fly for commercial passengers. Right. The CPL will be dumped under their new rules um, and the PPL will have a gradings on it so you'll be sort of category a category b category c according to the size of the balloon and so on so it has it is going to change right very interesting um when i was thinking about learning to fly fix when you turn up at your local aero club and take a you know half hour trial flight is there something similar in, in ballooning that you can do yes there is you can uh, join one of the local clubs or come to one of the local clubs there are a number of regional clubs across the country and you can go to one of the clubs talk to the club members and the chances are one of them will take you for a flight and if you like it you, the usual route is to crew first help out with the crewing of the balloon then get on board and get some hands-on experience and go from there okay uh, are there any other things that you need to train for as a, a balloonist are, are, are there any things that are particularly uh, pertinent to ballooning like uh, obviously you, need, you don't land at aerodromes is there anything you need to know about landing in Land, well, we do. We run a, what we call a landowner relations course, and across the country, we run these courses from time to time. And we encourage everybody to go on them from, from occasionally. They learn about well, anger management for a start, but <laughs> learn about you know the different types of crops and animals, how much effect they're going to have on animals and so on when they're coming into land, yep. and hopefully they will learn to respect the landowner as a result of it. And, yes. You know, be more careful. Cows don't tend to mind balloons, do they? They're quite inquisitive, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. It can be a problem in the sense that they will they will chase a balloon. You know, yeah. they're quite interested in it. And, yeah. of course, you know, depending on the time of the year, that's not always a good thing for cattle to be doing. So right. that can be a problem. 
Um, horses are probably a, a risk area. If you suddenly spook a horse, it might damage itself, so yep. that's one thing to worry about. And pigs are a, a, a major concern. Are they? Well, if you're flying low over an area with pigs and you get a, a heavy sow, she might be 1,500 weight, she starts to run, she'll take out the fences and whatever's in front of her. And that can cause serious damage. So pigs are very obvious from a distance. You can see the, the arcs and so on. You can yep. see where they are. Yes. And the, the, the um, instructions are stay high. And be, you know, but we are aware of almost all the pig uh, units in the country now, so we know where they are and we, we get high before we get there. Fascinating. I never thought pigs would be <laughs> something yeah. you'd be looking out for. Yeah. Uh, pigs, they are, they are a problem. Other animals, sheep and goats and that sort of thing, are, are no real problem at all. They're, they're fine. Chickens can be a problem, and again, it's a matter of awareness. So we like to be well aware of them and stay high. Okay, uh, I know with uh, fixed wing you can go and train like in Florida. Is there any, any requirement in this amongst people wishing to learn to fly balloons to go abroad and, and learn to fly in better weather? Yeah, um, we're, there are balloon schools in Spain and Italy and Germany now and you can go over there as long as, uh, at the moment, as long as you are taught by a British um, instructor. He's got to be a UK licensed instructor. Under the new rules with EASA, of course, as of 2012, they will, you will be able to be taught by any European instructor because he will be licensed to the same, same standard as the, the UK. Okay. So things will change. Um, and similarly, our instructors can go and teach people in Europe if they want to. You know, so there will be a sort of a crossing. Once you've got your PA, a PPL, how do you get into the air then? I presume you need to buy into a, a, a share in a balloon? or Yeah, it... it the tendency to have um, syndicates that there used to be seems to have died out a lot in recent years. At yes. one time, when I first started, that's how we worked. We had a syndicate of four. Yep. We would share the, the, the costs of flying. And the advantage was that you had probably three people flying and one driving the re retrieve vehicle. So it worked extremely well. And you, you, you swap round. So that worked extremely well. The tendency was for people to own their own balloons and then have family or friends crewing for them. And that has gone on. I think the sadness about it is that of course with insurance costs going up and up and up again through Europe because they've doubled the liabilities and so on, a lot of family balloons have, have disappeared because they simply can't afford the cost or can't justify the cost of paying £2,000 a year to insure a balloon that only do 10 flights in. Sure. Um, so to some extent I suppose commercial ballooning has aided that because people have said, well, we want to fly in a balloon rather than spend you know, loads of money on insuring a balloon. If I want the odd flight, I'll just go and jump in the local commercial flight and go with him. Okay. So that's, it's not, not a very good progression, I don't think. I think it's rather sad. So is there any alternative for a private individual? The answer is to join a club because clubs like ours, the local one, the Black Horse Ballooning Club, have their own club balloon. So it's much, much cheaper because the club insure the balloon and they make sure it's, it's certified and so on. And it's quite simple to go down there and rent the balloon. Mm -hmm. And if you've got a PPL, just rent the balloon and go fly in it. And it costs you £60 an hour or something. It's the cheapest way of flying. Yep. Uh, if you haven't got a PPL and you want to learn, again, you can go and rent the balloon, get one of the local PPLs to come with you and go fly. So I think probably the way forward for the future for people is for clubs across the country to have their own balloons and for people to access that balloon and go flying when they want to, you know, rather like the fixed wing have done over the years. Yes.
how much is a is a balloon likely to cost you nowadays? Um, a new three-person sporting balloon, a 77, probably around about 18,000 for the complete rig, 18 to 20,000 for the full rig, something in that sort of oil. You can buy perfectly serviceable second-hand rigs for maybe six to 8,000 that are quite flyable and have got plenty of hours left on them, so it's not... And you know, the number of hours is dictated by the the, the fabric and uh, yeah. the quality of the fabric. The, the problem with the fabric is that it's it's coated with Teflon to make it non-porous. But yes. of course, that coating tends to break down while the ultraviolet light breaks it down. So the more you fly it in the sunshine, the more it wears out. Yep. And eventually, as it gets becomes porous, it simply uses more gas to keep it in the air. And it's like flying a tea bag after a while. If you're not careful, it's just pumping heat into it. And that accelerates the process of deterioration of the fabric. So, um, the average balloon can do probably four to five hundred hours if it's looked after. And a log is kept and it's checked yep. every year for. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an annual CFA and it's checked, and we do uh, a porosity test on it and also a grab test to make sure that you know the strength of the fabric is okay. Uh, are there the two major manufacturers in this country that I've heard of? It's Cameron, is it, and Lindstrand? Yes, although um, Lindstrand are owned, are wholly owned by Cameron Bluens now. Right. So there's really only one company, that's Cameron Bluens, because there used to be Thunder and Colt and Lindstrand and Cameron, but because of sort of financial problems, particularly after the... Uh, the crisis in 2000, you know, when we had the foot and mouth crisis, that brought things down. So it's, they're really under one now. Yeah. Um, and then there are other countries abroad, principally Ultra Magic balloons in Spain, and um, there's a company in Czechoslovakia as well that make make balloons as well. Okay, uh, you mentioned a, a 77. Just give me a brief introduction as to the, the types of balloons yeah. you could you could buy as a once you've got your PPL. Let's say yeah. you, you know, your first balloon. Are, are there introductory balloons? Yeah, the 77 or 77,000 cubic feet. Okay. Uh, the, the volume of, of the the balloon itself is probably the the major size for people to use. It's a handy size. It carries three people. It's it's easy enough to handle and so on. So that's usually that's the, the one that's, that's in favour. You can start right at the bottom end of the little solo balloon uh, with a say a, a 25,000 cubic feet that will carry just one person. Is that uh, the one where it doesn't have a basket? Sometimes they don't have a basket. It's just you strapped to a, a giant propane yeah. tank and Sat a little seat with a tank yeah. behind you and off you go. <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is great fun. Yeah. Uh, I've got one of those here. Yeah. Um, and then you might go up to a 31. I've got a 31 here which has got a basket, but one man again, two yeah. tanks, one man, little balloon. This is really handy and you can pick it up and carry it. Yeah. Uh, and then you get up to sort of a, a 42, 56 will carry two people generally, 77. Then you're up to the bigger grades of a 90 and 105s. Um, get up to 120, 120,000 and carry six people. And then you're in the sort of commercial sizes generally. 120s are used for often for long distance flying and alpine flying because you can carry a lot of fuel and you know perhaps two passengers you right. know pilot and co-pilot and a lot of fuel and you've got maybe eight ten hours duration flying so you can uh, you know get a long distance in then um, and then once you're above that size of course you're into the the commercial balloons sort of 180s 210s and now we're even up to 400s and 450s, you know, with 20-odd passengers on board. Getting pretty big now. Yeah, it's too many, isn't it, 20? 
really for a in, balloon flight? In my opinion, it's too too many. It's um, it's becoming more of a sort of coach outing. Rather, yeah. You know, it's yeah. part of the joy of flying in balloons is just enjoying what's going on, but but talking to the pilot and finding out what's yeah. happening. So yeah. you know, and if you've got too many people, you can't do that. Yeah. So we 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 reckon. Eight is the ideal size. Eight, eight passengers and the pilot, because everybody can chat to the pilot, see what's going on, and it sort of, sort of becomes still a bit of a family thing. You know? so we like that size. Excellent. Okay. Uh, what uh, What do you need apart from a balloon? Then equipment-wise, do you need anything? Equipment. Well, you obviously got to have the trailer to put the balloon in to cart it around. Of course, yeah. And you need a, uh, a vehicle to tow the trailer. Uh, ideally, you want a four-wheel drive because from time to time you're going to end up in a nice soft field somewhere. Yep and uh, an ordinary car is not really good enough. If you're using a small balloon, 65 or 77, that you can carry it, then a car is perfectly adequate. You park it at the side of the road, it just means you've got to carry it out of the field and put it in the trailer, which is not too difficult. Okay. So, you know, it's, it's perfectly okay, but you need a tow hook, of course. Yep. GPS? Don't need a GPS. It's jolly handy. Mm -hmm. um, particularly, again, because of the, the sensitive areas that we've got around the country, it is useful to know exactly where you are mm -hmm. on the map. We've got all, all the, uh, these areas marked on our, our Ordnance Survey maps, and to know precisely where you are, particularly if you're in an area where you've, it's, it's un, unknown to you, if you haven't flown in an area before, it's quite useful to use the map and use the GPS to locate precisely where you are. But, but it's not necessary. The only other good thing about GPS is it does give you wind changes very rapidly and that's jolly useful. Yes. You know, if you're if you're steering, trying to steer a balloon and you, you can watch the GPS and see your changes in direction at different altitudes, that's really useful. Right. And I must admit that's what I use it for most of the time. Not to know where I am because I usually do around here, but it's handy if I'm trying to steer towards a, a particular landing site. You can you can change altitude and watch the GPS. Yes. You know. So it's interesting you say steer a balloon there. I mean, obviously you can't physically steer it within the air mass that you're in, but you can move up and down. You can use the different air masses, exactly, yes. yeah. Generally, on an average day, you get about a 20 degree shift between a surface and 2,000 feet. So you've got that much steerage. Yes. Um, on a really good day, you might have 90 degrees or something. So it's really handy, you know, you can... And there are exceptional days when you might have a complete change of direction and you maybe fly out at a couple of thousand feet, go up to three or four thousand feet and turn around and come back again. As it sometimes happens in England, but rarely, but yeah. in, on the continent it happens a lot. Okay. Uh, you mentioned uh, OS maps you're using, so you don't use CAA maps of the air? You're we around. use the CAA charts because we're required to, of course, under aviation law, so right. we, we carry the half mil chart. Um, but we also principally use the, the ordnance survey maps but they're overprinted both with the sensitive areas that's you know sort of horses and sheep and cattle and so on plus they're generally overprinted by with airspace as well okay so for our sort of flying the ordnance survey the overprinted ordnance survey map is perfectly adequate because it'll mark up the airspace Luton, Bryce, Heathrow or whatever it puts on it the frequencies you know, approach frequencies and so on so generally that's enough for us you know, we're flying at relatively low level most of the time, probably 1,500, 2,000 feet, so it's, it's fine for us. Okay. Now, we're based in, uh, in sunny Buckinghamshire here, so you have some major airspace not too far to the south and east. Yeah. Heathrow. Heathrow, of course, to the south. Uh, so uh, on a northwesterly wind from here, we're heading towards Heathrow. So yeah. we, 
we then tend to have to go further out and fly back. Uh, Luton to the north of us, um, we are always flying around the, the edges of Luton space. Um, they're slightly different than Heathrow. Heathrow, you, there's no entry for balloons, that's it. Yeah. Absolutely no entry. Luton, on the other hand, there is entry, provided you talk to them. Yeah. Uh, they're very accommodating, generally allowing us maybe four or five miles into their zone before we land, something like that. So they're fine. As long as you speak to them, they're, they're extremely helpful. Good. Um, you know, we, we find them very, very helpful indeed. But and from here you can fly pretty much as far as you like, west and... Yeah, north. going west we would go uh, out with... We've got Bry's going out that way, but again, they're, they're very, very helpful and no mm. problem. We've got Benson, Bry's, people like that, but you just talk to them. They're, they're great. Yeah. Um, going the other way, going out east or sort of northeast, the next stop for us, I suppose, is Stansted. Slightly less accommodating than Luton, but again, there are we have managed to get local area agreements with them, and so under certain sections of their airspace, you can fly without any difficulty at all. Okay. And well, my experience right across the country, all airspace, you know, has been is accessible mm -hmm. as long as you talk to them. Yeah, they can see you coming, can't they? They see you coming. We're very slow moving, <laughs> yeah. um, and as long as you make them aware of your presence, they're usually, you know put up with you. Oh, good, glad to hear that. Uh, if you uh, have been flying for a few years and want to take your training further, what, what are the options available to you? Well the next phase is a CPL. If you've got your PPL, you've got a few hours up and you want to perhaps make money out of ballooning by doing uh, flying passengers and so on, then it's a, a commercial pilot's licence. To do that you probably need to have had around about 60 or 70 hours P1 um, and then you can check out and do um, your, your Group A licence, which enables you to fly balloons up to 120. That's up to a sort of six-man balloon, and you can get that one. Having achieved that, you, do, uh, you can do another 10 or 20 hours flying P1 in one of those, and then you need to do some hours in a, a bigger balloon, a Category B balloon, and again you do a line check with, a, with a, an examiner and passing that you're on to B and then the next stage up you need quite a lot more hours is to fly a category C balloon that's 320,000 cubic feet and above so you're talking about 16 man balloons and above. Some companies demand I think uh, Virgin balloons are requiring 500 hours P1 before they'll allow their pilots to fly the, the category C balloons yep certainly need a lot of hours before you fly those. They do require a level of skill, um, particularly a level of awareness, because the thing is with a big balloon they can get out of control if you're not careful. You have them sinking too fast and sometimes it's difficult to stop them. So you need to know what you're doing with a big balloon. Okay. Uh, are there any exams that you need to take for the CPL? Yeah, the CPL examinations are, s are similar to the PPL. In fact, uh, they're, they're more or less the same set of examinations. They're just slightly more difficult to do. The aviation law is just a little bit more complex. Um, and generally speaking, the CPL examinations t take place uh, at Gatwick. You have to go down to Gatwick and you sit them down at Gatwick, whereas the PPL is sort of a more home-based thing. You can take them locally with a club member. Right. So a little bit more complicated. Not overly complicated, in my opinion. It, they're looking more for experience than the, the, the actual examinations themselves. Okay. Uh, there are other things you can do uh, under the auspices of the, uh, 
the BBAC, the, is it the Balloon and British Balloon and Airship Club? Yep. Um, can you tell me a little bit about those? Yep. Well, there's there's the RT license, of course, which we we touched on earlier, yes. yep. um, and we run courses, or the BBAC run courses across the country to get your RT license, which is a requirement for CPL anyway. Okay. And then we do what's called a land and relations course. Um, this is to encourage pilots to be aware of the problems of landing on agricultural land. Um, and we run courses to teach people what crops look like, how to recognise them, what's the time of the year to be aware of animals calving and this sort of thing. Okay. Do you need a CPL to be an instructor? You no, know, no. You need a CPL to instruct CPLs, of course. Okay. But you need you don't need a CPL to instruct a PPL. You just need an instructor rating, what they call a BBAC instructor rating. Okay, and you can be paid to be an instructor in, in that case? You can be paid by the student, yes. Right. Yeah. Okay, uh, perhaps you could uh, give me an idea of what a typical balloon flight involves. Tell I me about the weather to start. I was going to say, start with the weather. Start with the weather. Start start with with the weather. weather. a good place to start. The night before, generally look at the weather on, on the weather forecast and... We require, generally speaking, a, wind, a surface wind of less than about eight knots to, before we would attempt to, to launch a balloon. So it's under eight knots, and maybe a gradient wind, 2,000 foot wind of 15, 20 knots, something like that is acceptable. That's quite often you get less than eight knots, isn't it, in yeah, this country? Yeah, I mean, today we're probably down to three knots, I think. Yeah. That's the first requirement. Next is obviously clear air. We don't want. Um, too, too uh, heavy cloud or anything like that, or threatening thunderstorms. Those are particularly yeah. something that we need to be yeah. aware of. So get your forecast first. Next, you need to know the direction that the wind is going to take you because your pre-flight planning is very important with the balloon. Because one thing you can't do is turn around and go off the other way. So mm -hmm. you need to know where you're going to go once you've launched. So you get your wind direction off the map. If it's a acceptable direction from the launch site you want, that's fine. If it's not, you have to find another launch site. Having got all those together, got your crew organised and got the gas and so on, you turn up at the field the following day um, and prepare the balloon. With with balloons, it's rather like fixed wing, I suppose. The, we do our, our own inspection of the balloon as we're inflating it. So we'll go around and check all the, the bits, make sure there are no holes in it, and, you know, no leaks with the tanks, that type of thing. So we do a sort of pre-flight inspection of the balloon. Inflate the balloon, get people on board, do a little safety check and so on. In terms of the inflation, I mean, I've seen people, you don't start with the burners straight away, do you? you have like no. a giant fan. Yeah, what you need to do is to get the balloon inflated far enough so that when you put the burner on you don't melt it basically. Yeah. Um, so we reckon about 60% of its volume with cold air. Once you've got it to that point and the sides far enough apart, on goes the balloon. And in, in this process you have uh, a chap on the crown line that's on holding the balloon down basically by hand to stop yeah. it sort of prematurely coming up in the air and closing the mouth. Yeah. So you get somebody on the crown line um, and then you put the burner on and stand the balloon upright. Now, now, is the wind speed critical for the launch and landing rather than the flying element? Yes, the, right. the flying you can tolerate almost any wind speed once you're in the air. Yeah. Um, I've flown a balloon 100 mile an hour, it's not, not a problem. Um, the, the, the difficult bit is the transition from the air to the ground. Yeah. Um, 
obviously if you're coming into land and it's 20 knots it's going to be quite a serious landing <laughs> it's quite achievable yeah it just means that you probably have probably have a bigger field yeah uh, you know make sure there are no obstructions downwind obstructions when you're yeah. coming into land otherwise yeah. it gets exciting and not that many big fields around <laughs> no no not not all that big <laughs> you know if, if you if you're doing 20 knots you can get across the field pretty sharpish mm -hmm. uh, and the balloon doesn't want to deflate too quickly and so it'll it, what they call spinnaker the edge of the balloon will come up and it'll drag you across like a toboggan right. across the field small balloons in yeah. particular can do this you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah we used to do um flights onto salisbury plain some years ago they've stopped doing it now sadly but we we would fly onto salisbury plain and uh that was really exciting because you could you could land on Salisbury Plain at 40 knots yeah. because there are no no fences, just big grass fields. Yeah. So you, if you get it right, you come in and you hit the ground, and then you, you're off sort of right, like riding a chariot up the field. It's great fun. <laughs> okay, so the the balloon is upright. Um, what's next? It's next, tied down at this point. Yeah, it's tied down to what we call a, a quick release, um, just a rope tied off to the to the vehicle just to make sure it doesn't go off prematurely. Yep. We then check that we've got all the fuel with the instruments uh, switched on and so on. We heat the balloon up till it's rather like the old gas balloon days, till it's just about buoyant. Um, check we're okay of no downwind obstructions and then pop the quick release and off we go. Okay, what sort of height do you aim to fly at? Locally probably no lower than 500 feet and probably up to two, two and a half thousand feet. Something in that sort of order around sort of local airspace. If you're looking for a, a longer distance flight, maybe four or five thousand feet or ten thousand feet is perfectly acceptable. You know, sometimes it's, it's quite a nice height to fly at, actually, yeah. if, you're, you know, if you're on a long distance flight. You get a great view at a thousand feet. Oh, yeah. It's, it's yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Best, best height to fly at, isn't it? <laughs> Can you fly if, it, if there is an overcast? Yes. At 3,000? You yes. Would, you'd be happy yeah. to fly beneath it? Yeah, well, happy to fly below it. Yeah, okay. As long as we, we're in sight of the ground, we're okay. And we've already discussed uh, restricted airspace. In terms of landing, you're just looking for a size of field, no trees or anything to hook the balloon on? Yeah. That's the, it's, it, when you're coming into land, you're looking... Ideally, you're looking for a grass field that has access... Um, it all sounds a bit odd when you're coming into land, but you're looking yeah. for an unlocked gate, you know, and a grass field yeah. with no power wires around it, no animals to scare as you're coming in. Yeah. Those are all the sort of parameters that you're looking for as you're coming in. So it's all a, it's a, it's a pretty last-minute thing to, to see all of those yes. points, you know, but you, you get them most of the time. Of course you need, as you say, access and fairly close to a road so your yeah. crew can yeah. bowl into the field and not ruin someone's exactly. crop. Exactly, yeah. so we need, need to make sure that we've got a gate that's accessible and so on. So once, when you're coming down... On average, how many how many fields do you uh... well? I suppose a few. Usually, from experience, at, at, at a sort of fifteen hundred feet, you can look ahead of you and you can get a pretty good idea. The ideal scenario is to find a grass, uh, find a crop field that you can fly low over the crop field with a grass field beyond it. That's the perfect scenario yep. because you can you can get your height out, doing no damage and not upsetting any animals and so on, and you can just put along the over the crop field, over the hedge, into the grass field and land, and that's the, the, the perfect scenario. So that's what you're looking for, ideally. Okay. And nine out of ten landowners are okay with you? In this area, they're brilliant, yeah. Most, most of them are really, really good and helpful. Um, we have the odd one or two that, that 
don't like balloons, but um, and sometimes I've had incidents in the past where they've been upset by it. That's why we have this landowner relations system. Uh, but mostly they're extremely friendly. Um, it's a question of demonstrating respect for their land, mm -hmm. the way I always see it. If a balloon landed in your own back garden, you may not be too impressed. Yeah. And it's the same thing. Farmer, he's just got a big back garden. It yeah. might be a thousand acres, but it's his yeah. back garden. Yeah. And he probably knows every inch of it. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that upsets them is driving across fields and leaving tracks and so on across the fields because they're going to last forever. So they, they, that's the sort of thing that you have to be very aware of okay. um, and be respectful of the landowner. If you damage the crop, do they expect you to compensate them? They quite rightly expect to be paid for it. Yeah. Um, we're insured, so if the damage is uh, you know, high, then the insurance co company would pay for it. I see. Right. Um, if it's a, a small damage, you know, if you happen to land in standing crop and you've just plonked the basket in a corner of standing crop, it's a matter of negotiation with the farmer. Very often he'll probably say, well, it's not a problem, we'll stand up tomorrow or I'm going to cut it next week, no worries. Sometimes they might get a little bit upset and then you, you've got to just talk nicely to them. Yeah, okay. Now, as I say, you're, you're based down here at Great Missenden in Buckinghamshire. You do have the choice of flying from nearby here, but if the, if the wind is in the wrong direction, you can drive away and fly back, can't you? Yeah, okay. yeah that's what we do. Uh, and you fly mostly little one-hour flights? For, for, pa for passengers, around about the one-hour flights, yep. Okay. yep. Uh, tell me a little bit more about uh, European balloons. We started the company up, um, what, 16 years ago now, actually flying in France, in the, in the French Alps. Yeah. Following on from our first experience of flying in the Swiss Alps that my son and I absolutely loved and, think, and still think it's the best flying in the world. Yeah. Um, so we decided we ought to set up a company flying passengers in the Alps. Um, France seemed to be the ideal place and uh, so we went down to Briançon in the French Alps, set up the European Balloon Company and had three seasons flying there. There were local difficulties with the authorities, which uh, in the end we decided that we'd best come back to England. Okay. Um, since we had already had the, the, the company started, we then started flying around here, and then gradually we expanded and we took over one or two other little companies around the area, and we're sort of the main, the main ballooning company in the area now. For pleasure, do you go abroad still and, and fly? Yep, yep, I've flown in 40-odd countries around the world now, I suppose. Yeah. There is a major meet in Switzerland. What's that place called? Chatterday. That's, that's a, an exceptional meet. Yeah, that to, must be the ultimate, isn't it, flying in the Swiss Alps? To fly in January in the Swiss Alps when it's bitterly cold, maybe minus 10, minus 15, with snow on the ground and a brilliant blue sky, it's just exceptional. Life yeah. doesn't get any better no, for a balloonist. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But other places, um, rock and deserts are good, and uh, you know, places in Mexico... And, they have a, a, a very large balloon, uh, balloon meet in Albuquerque in, in uh, America. Of yeah. Course, yeah, up to a thousand balloons there. That's quite spectacular. Yeah. yeah, and that's a very exciting meet to go to. If you want to see a lot of balloons, that's the place to go. Uh, you've got to get there early, haven't you? I made this mistake years and years ago when I was in Bristol. And I thought I saw a balloon festival. Yeah. So I got up, had my breakfast, moseyed down. Yeah. At Turned out at nine o'clock <laughs> and it's all gone. <laughs> yeah. You've got to be there at crack yeah. of dawn. Crack of dawn. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, in Albuquerque, it's sort of a half past five start. You've got to be really early. Yeah, um, and I was lucky enough to to travel to Russia when uh, 
when the Russian Federation broke up, they started running the odd meet out there. Um, and the first one we went to was in Lithuania. And we had a fantastic time in, in flying in Lithuania and landing in Russian rocket bases and all sorts of mad things, yeah. you know, it was wonderful. And since, and then we went on to fly in, in uh, Russia itself. We went up to help with the renaming of, of the, the city at St. Petersburg. Uh, we were first balloon to fly over the city and so on, um, which is really exciting. Um, and since then we've flown around the, all, the, all the Baltic countries. And in fact, I've flown in every country in Europe now. Greece is the only country I haven't managed to fly in. Yeah. So we've done all the other countries. I um, presume once you've, you're flying in the Alps and places like that, it's whole new weather things to, to learn yeah, about. Yeah, there's a lot. A lot. Generally, alpine flying is done in the wintertime because the air is much more stable in the winter. When it's very, very cold, it's stable. In the summertime, when it starts to get thermic, it's, it's very, very challenging and you don't do too much of it. You have to be uh, very skillful and you, you have to be a, generally a local pilot that knows the area extremely well. So it's not to be recommended for the faint-hearted. Yeah. Is there a mountain flying rating or not? No, there isn't. There's only a, a, just an experience level. And most of the balloon meets, like Chateau Day, for instance, do require people to have had a number of years' experience at flying in the area before they'll let them go off on their own and fly because they, they need to know what's going on. Yeah. I, mean, I have seen on the TV, I'm sure I've, I've read somewhere, that you can actually get back to the place you, uh, you set off from in, uh, yep. in one of the Alpine valleys. Yep, the Chateau Day, you can use the, the valley winds, as they call it. And so in the morning, you fly down on the... The, uh, the valley wind and then probably park up somewhere and have a cup of cocoa and then as the wind changes you can fly back to the launch site again. Yeah. We had one year, I think we did 55 hours flying and we never ever got the, the retrieve vehicle out once. We flew back to the launch site every day for 10 days. Uh, what sort of services does European balloons offer now in this country? Uh, principally passenger flying in the Chilterns area. That's what we do mainly uh, for both individuals and for corporate events and uh, groups of people and so on. That's what we do. Brilliant. Uh, so if somebody wants to uh, learn how to fly, they need to contact their local flying club and th that they would find via the BBAC? Yep. If you go onto the BBAC website, that should give you the, the regional clubs there. Okay, I'll put their contact details in the show notes yeah. and, of course, your contact details as well. Great. Brilliant. Well, thank you very much, Ted. That's great. Pleasure. Ted Moore of European Balloons. As I said in the podcast, you can find links to European Balloons in the show notes, which can be found at www.flyingpodcast.co.uk. Don't forget, you can follow me on Twitter by searching for Flying Podcast. That's all one word. Uh, the same applies to Facebook. Search for Flying Podcast or click on the Facebook link on the website. Well, that's it for episode 24. If you have any comments, suggestions for future episodes, or if you'd like to take part, you can email me on steve at flyingpodcast.co.uk. Thanks for listening. I'll speak to you again soon.